You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. This is a very special episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Why? Many of you know I co-host another podcast called Silicon Valley Tech, where myself and Sunil S. Ronka interview some of the biggest names in technology from around the world, not just Silicon Valley. We've interviewed the 1998 Miss Universe, who is now heading an incubation park in the Caribbean. We interviewed Prem James, who sold five companies to Cisco, along with an investment analyst from Bloomberg Financials and many more. One of the guests that we had on, Helen Pastorino, is a huge fan of the Silicon Valley podcast. And I want to do her a favor and promote the other podcast as well by taking the interview that's on that channel and promote it on this one. For everyone out there, check out the other podcast. And on today's show, Helen Pastorino, she was the co-founder of Alan Pinnell Realtors, where as president, she grew sales volumes into billions of dollars. She's worked with some of the leaders in tech in Silicon Valley, implementing real estate tech before anyone else. On today's show, we talk about what was it like meeting and working with Steve Jobs? How does one implement tech in a company? What is it like to be on the bleeding edge of technology? What does the future look like for the real estate market post-COVID? And what is the true legacy of a CEO? Now remember, go on iTunes, write a review, and share with your network because they'll want this knowledge as well. All right, now let's start the show, the Silicon Valley Podcast. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Helen, thank you for taking the time today to be on Silicon Valley Tech with myself, Sean Flynn, and Sunil Esranka. Now, we are very excited about this interview. We got to talk to you off camera before and when we found out you have 45 horses, we found out about you know your family, your history, your neighbor, Steve Wozniak, of all people, one of our heroes and one of the people we look up to. And we are very excited about this. And I know everyone at home is going to love this episode. But before going too in depth, can you give us a little bit of background up to this point of your career and your time here in Silicon Valley? Well, thank you both for having me. I came to the Valley in 1968 and my parents were looking, actually located a smaller little town up the peninsula that they wanted to move to. It was called Palo Alto. They looked at resale homes in Palo Alto, but could not afford them. At that time, a resale, average resale home in Palo Alto was $42,000. You said $42,000? $42,000 was a little bit over my father's budget. <laughs> So he ended up taking them, moving the family to Cupertino, and we bought a brand new home up off of Bub Road in the foothills and paid $31,000 for that. And he borrowed a little bit from his life insurance policy to make sure he could make that down payment on that home. Now, I recall not too long from then, I have a copy of the San Jose Mercury News. On the front page of the Mercury News, it says, Saratoga housing prices hit $100,000. And the conversation was, how could this be and who can afford these houses? So the decision was they were celebrities, they were uh, movie stars, or they were athletes. But the average family could not afford a $100,000 home. Employment in the Valley at that time was Moffett Field. It was Stanford. Both of them were affected by whether we had a Republican or a Democratic president. So when you talk about 
the swings of real estate in the Valley. At that point in time, it was if we had a president that would support Moffett Field, then we were booming with VA loans all over the Valley. And if not, then we were in a recession until the next election. Agriculture, as everybody knows and reads about, was prevalent in the Valley. And some of the key locations were Olson's Cherries in Sunnyvale and the Del Monte insignia in Campbell, downtown San Jose, Cali Brothers, of course, in Cupertino. And I think all of the kids at some point or another were employed by Cali Brothers. And I know I work there. And for 50 cents a tray, we were asked to cut the apricots in half, splay them on the tray. And then those trays went as far as you could see. And the trays were eight by eight feet by four feet. And you were paid 50 cents a tray. So can you imagine how long it took for you to cut? Well, of course, you ate one and you cut five. There was no 85. Well, 85 was on the maps. It's been on the maps for a long, long time. 35 years, it actually appeared on the maps. But there were houses that completely all the way through 85. And then there was a decision made that, okay, that was it. 85 was in fact going to be built and there was going to be five to six years. So we had to start talking about moving houses out of the corridors. We had to start talking about the exit ramps. At that point in time in my career, I worked at a company called Fox and Carscad and I managed their Saratoga office. We had a meeting at De Anza College at the Flint Center. It holds about 23, 2,500 people. We had five mayors. We had Caltrans. We had a couple of managers, a few lawyers, and basically talked about where the off-ramps for 85 were going to occur and in what cities and where. Los Gatos was adamant they would not have any sort of 85 off-ramp. They were the most difficult of all the towns with regards to accepting an off-ramp. What they didn't want were people to be able to come from different areas and just land in their town. They did not want one. So the rule became that every town had to have one. Minimum, you were going to have to identify within your town or city where you were going to have an 85 off ramp. Mm -hmm. We're driving through the valley now. I drove here today and I had a smile on my face when I jumped on 85 in Los Gatos. Because you can only go one way. The the 85 off ramp in Los Gatos is only north. You can't. It's just, so I jumped on and I laughed. I I thought, yeah, I remember this. I remember the argument about this on-ramp. And then your career path currently and in the past 20, 30 years, what sector has it been in? And can you talk about the development of that? Yes. I started in real estate in 1975. I was 21 years of age. At that time, I was a sole practitioner. I was an individual real estate broker and sold real estate in the Valley. The Valley was full at the time of very small offices, independently owned, five to 15, 25 people at most in those offices. Most of them were gentlemen. Most of them were male, probably in their 50s, retired or second careers. Very unusual to see a young woman in the industry and rarely saw any woman who was uh, the broker of record or actually owned a company. I learned my mentors were mostly men, middle-aged, retired, or second careers, and they taught me very well. I went on in 1998. I was 27 years old, and I began to manage the Fox and Carscadden office in uh, Saratoga on Prospect and Highway 9. Fox and Carscadden was a very well-known 
real estate company. It was founded in the peninsula in 1929, one of the top three in the valley. And Saratoga office, you know, the when you were in the peninsula in those days, and I'm not so sure it hasn't changed, the South Bay was kind of a stepsister or a stepbrother. It was unfortunate that you had to identify yourself as a South Bay real estate firm. And the peninsula firms did their best to accommodate us, but we were really South Bay. Cox and Carskadden was a peninsula firm, as was Grubinellos, as was Cornish and Kerry, and those were the big three firms in the Valley. I took over Saratoga and we became one of their top first, second or third offices. So now they could no longer dismiss the South Bay because one of their top offices were there. In 84, I think I was 30 years old then. And now you can figure out how old I am now. <laughs> were, you, were you calculating? I saw you, Sean. Luckily, none, none of us are engineers and we don't have, we're not good at math. So, exactly. so we're, all, we're all good here. Well, I took over. I became their senior vice president. I stayed managing Saratoga, which was considered a very large office at that time. It was 50 people. I took over. I oversaw Palo Alto to Carmel. I had seven other offices that I was responsible for in addition to the office I managed. At 1989, my boss, who was the general manager at Fox and Carskadden, applied for the position of president of Fox and Carskadden. He was denied that role, shared that with me, and shared who the president would become, and I resigned. I left Fox and Carskadden when I was maybe 34 with my boss, Alain Pinnell. We didn't quite know what we were going to do. We thought maybe we'd go to work for another one of the other remaining large firms. But we decided instead that we would open our own firm. In June of 1990, we opened Alain Pinnell Realtors. It was myself, Alain, and Paul Hume. Paul Hume was a client of mine. I reached out to Paul. He was not in real estate at all. And he said, sure, I'd love to do that. So the three of us opened the company in June of 1990. In June of 1990, we were in the middle or just at the beginning of a five-year recession. Phrase on the street was survive till 95. That, that was, we were all hoping that we would make it through this five-year downturn. So here we are starting doing a startup. In June of 90, being told that we were heading for a major recession, I had signed on to follow. I was going to be a follower in this organization and do what Alon told me to do because he was a superstar. He was just amazing. His marketing skills were just ridiculously impressive. Well, what happened was we had to make a decision. We were a small firm of 17 people. We had leased a 7,800 square foot office. So a large office was 50 people. 7,800 square feet is 150 to 200 people. That's what it'll accommodate. One of our decisions was to go from small to large. There were no large firms in the Valley. Second of all was how to survive this downturn. We had 17 people. You can imagine how that felt to have 17 people in 7,800. It was a ghost. It was in a bowling alley. There was nobody there. So we had to figure out how to compete with these big companies with 17 people. Everybody was saying, you won't make it. You'll never survive. We're heading for a recession, bad timing. 
we came up with the decision, what are we going to do? We looked at the standards of practices in all three of the other firms. We had worked in them, so we knew what standards of practice were. How are we going to beat those standards? And so you can market a little more, spend a little more money. And at that point, all the advertising, because there wasn't technology in the public domain of any extent, it was to buy more advertising, buy more marketing, buy more magazines, business journal, San Jose Mercury News, luxury magazines, homes and lands. We'll just buy more pages. Well, we couldn't buy more pages. We were competing against 1,500 brokers or agents in other firms with 17. So the decision came down to, which I didn't know at the time, technology or magazines. None of us knew anything about technology. We couldn't even, I mean, we didn't have the language. Like we didn't even know how to talk about it. We only knew the word technology and there were computers. This is a perfect segue for the next question or the. Being in Silicon Valley, you have seen so many changes. What was that inflection point where you started seeing technology as a prevalent market share within Silicon Valley? Those things, when you look back, you can always identify that point. But when you live through it, you're never really sure where that point was. For us at Alam Panel, it was a very distinctive point because there were three of us co-founders. And when we had to make a decision where we were going to invest our money to ensure this firm survived this recession, and even if it survived, could compete against these companies that have been in the market since 1929, major players, we had to decide. And it was almost like scissors rock. What, what is that game? Rock, scissors, paper? <laughs> you wonder how decisions are made? Oh, my God. <laughs> Are we going to are we going to buy more magazines? Are we going to buy this technology stuff? Rocks, scissors, or paper? <laughs> so Alon's concern was that this was a passing fad, that these would end up being, as he called them, paperweights at some point in time, and that the real core of all success for real estate firms or, or firms in general was marketing, press release. Very difficult to argue with because it was a proven practice. Hard to argue technology because nobody had a clue. But the vote came in, and then when it was paper, scissors, rock, two of us decided technology, and Alon decided magazines, newspapers, and marketing. He resigned, and in December of 1996, months after we were founded, he returned to Paris and left. He did not believe, or at least according to what I believe he stated, he did not believe the technology would allow us to survive. What made you think that technology is the right way to go about your business? It was different. It was, it was bleeding edge, not leading edge. It was, it really hurt. It was bleeding edge. It was just at the forefront of where people were starting to talk about it. It was something like a wave that was coming. But it was a risk because waves come and they fail. I thought there was a high probability when you had companies like HP, Apollo, Sun, IBM, I thought it was going to stay. Now, could you tell me when you're saying technology, what was it at the time? Actually, at the time, at the time, it was hardware, hardware and towers and computers, you know, hardware. And almost all of it was in academics. Or in government. 
there was very little of it in the public domain. And if it was in the public domain, it was a single person had it. You had one, and you used it, but there was no connectivity. I have a few little dates here that was kind of surprising that ran along the same timeline as along Pinnell. In 1990, um, the first web browser was announced. I remember we incorporated in June of 1990. So we're talking bleeding edge, not leading edge, not on the edge, but we really. And then the next thing I think in 91 was Linux. And then 92, the first text message went out. In 94, Amazon was founded, PlayStation was created, and banner ads began to happen. In 95, of course, Windows 95. 96, the first Palm Pilot. 97, Steve Jobs returned to Apple after the Scully debacle. And in 1998, Google was founded. The Valley right now thinks it's really hopping. In those eight years, and that's just a few, in eight years during a major recession, those are some of the things that happen. And then all this technology, your company was starting to utilize? Were the agents, did they have their Palm Pilots? Did they have, was there a website, (laughs) hand-coded HTML, no WordPress? I'm really curious about all the other real estate agencies just looking at you going, "They're, they're doing what? Actually, we had more of a problem. The outside real estate companies thought this was a ploy, a joke, a short term, trying to get our name out there type thing. And we had more trouble inside our company than we had outside. The agents inside just didn't, it was just, they didn't understand how this was going to help them sell real estate. And nor did we. It was very hard to explain to them because we didn't know how this was going to help them sell real estate. And what we ended up doing, we ended up buying a number of towers. I think they were from HP. We went to Sun. We went to Apollo. We learned about proprietary software versus open. Here we are, real estate agents, right? Learning all this about. We bought the towers because it was all about the towers, you know, all about the hardware. And a friend of mine said, you ought to look at these workstations at Next. And I said, okay, what's the workstation? I'm just getting the tower thing down. And now we're moving on to workstations. And they said, you know, they're more powerful. The connectivity is different. It's a collaborative piece of hardware. I said, okay. And then we called for a meeting with Steve Jobs because he at that time owned Next. So I said, great, let's go talk to him and find out what this is and how it works. So I was 31. He had to be 29. And I had had a lot of success at a relatively young age in my career. When you're 30 years old and you've had a lot of success, you have attitude. (laughs) (laughs) But he was 29 and he had more success and he had more attitude. (laughs) (laughs) It took us a long time to get past his gatekeepers because we were lay people. We were out in the public. He was not selling to lay people. He was selling to academia. And he was selling to governments. He was selling not to the average user. It was really hard to get through the system to get to him. And it was persistence and tenacity and maybe being a little bit inappropriate. But we got through and we got a meeting. And all of us got dressed up like in our Sunday best and brought our briefcases and did our hair and put on our makeup or a three-piece suit. I mean, we were like going up to... And we went there in this huge conference room. It was so big, weighted, 
and waited and waited. And we were 45 minutes into our meeting time. No Steve Jobs. His staff was at the table with us. And I was asking, how long do we have to wait? Are are we too early? Did I get this wrong? Where is he? That type of thing. He'll be here. He'll be here. Finally, at 45 minutes, I said, okay, that's it. I'm done. Everybody, we're leaving. So everybody stands up. I stand up and we start to go out the door. I said, just a few minutes. I said, no, I'm done. I'm done. I'm out. And the door opens and there's Steve. He had on Levi's. And back then, that hadn't become protocol. You were supposed to dress up to go to big important meetings. But he, you know, came in and the minute he opened the door and the table was probably, it was quite a distance from the front door. The charisma was absolutely, I could not believe that a man could walk in a door and produce that kind of charisma from that distance. So I thought, I am in trouble here. I've got to lose the charisma immediately. Just chop it down to nothing. There is no charisma. It was very apparent there was. He came to the front of the conference room table, as you can imagine, and the first like nine chairs on both sides were empty. We started at the 10th chair with his team across the table at the 10th chair. I looked at that and I thought, okay, so this is how this is going to (laughs) go. What was it like interacting with Steve Jobs? Because you talked about attitude, success. He's not willing to sell to an outsider. How was whole interaction went? I had to quickly analyze how this was going to unfold, what role I was going to play, what role he was going to play, and what the outcome was going to be in. In a meeting like that, you have to decide where your walk point is. At what point am I going to walk? And at what point will I trigger him to walk? So you start, not that you would ever know, but you have to analyze and draw it somehow. Otherwise, you lose total control. And next thing you start agreeing to things that never in your life would you have agreed to if you, I think he came to the meeting fully prepared to tell us we were inappropriate and it wasn't going to happen. But there was some little part of him that was curious and he loved that next box. I mean, it was just an amazing piece of technology that there was a little part of him that thought, but what if? And I think that's the part of Steve Jobs that made him who he was. Probability, not going to happen, but what if? And we were a what if. We started talking. He said, what are you going to do with it? I don't know. Why would I sell it to you? I don't know. Well, you're a real estate company. Yes, we are. Well, do you know anything about technology? No, we don't. Yeah, I'm not selling it. That was kind of it. And I said, okay, but. Everybody has to learn. Your Apple computers are in schools now. That's telling me that your horizon of time says that you are preparing these for the public market. You want to sell these things to the public. So give us a chance. We're here and we'll be a successful introduction to that market for you. And he said, we're going to talk. The team's going to talk and we'll let you know. And weeks went by. And I called and I wrote and I can't email, right? You can't. I called and I wrote and I went up and I waited in the lobby and they told him I was in the lobby and he didn't come out. And I got a phone call and his calls typically come like this. Hi, it's Steve. Steve who? I know a lot of Steve's. (laughs) And I'm thinking, and why wouldn't you tell me who your last name was so I could at least, but I learned over the years, that's how he placed his calls. Hi, I'm Steve or it's Steve. 
So he called and he said, listen, I think we can do this. He said, but are you prepared to pay the price? And I said, well, I don't know. What is the price? And he said, these boxes are $5,000 a box. You could buy technology for $1,100 from proven HP, IBM, long-term, going to stay around predictable companies. And this was a risk. It was a monetary risk. That's a huge amount of money. But here's what I learned from him. Once we decided it was a go, he completely changed his posture. Now we were on the team. Now we were going to do this together. Now he was going to do everything he could to make this a successful exchange and a successful purchase and and engagement. And he started to teach us about object-oriented software. Now, mind you, I'm a real estate broker back then. And he says, listen, this is what it's all about. The box is necessary to run the software, but what you want to look at and what you want to buy is software. How long is it going to take to write the software to provide you the suites, the custom suites that you want, and what's it going to cost? Well, we know that because when we went to HP, it was hundreds of thousands of dollars and years for them to write custom suite that we wanted. He said $70,000, 90 days. And I thought that can't be true. I mean, how can those be that extreme? And then he explained why. He taught us about linear programming how you program linearly, and if you want to make a change, what that programmer has to do to make that change, and how object-oriented software allows you to build objects that you put in a library that you can pull down and modify as you wanted to change. So instantly, I thought, well, that makes perfect sense. If you want to write software, why wouldn't you want to write it on that kind of a platform rather than a linear, binary, linear, I guess? So I was in. He took us up to Oakland to some uh, programmers that did this. Amazing men, just amazing. They wrote our software for us in, I think it was a little over 90 days. They wrote seven custom suites. And I think it was $82,000. That's my experience with technology. So once this technology was implemented throughout your company, can you tell us about the growth of your company? Was it just, okay, we expanded 10% every year or was it hockey stick growth once the technology was implemented and customized for your company? That introduction of that technology almost brought the company to its knees. I had an opportunity to observe human beings and how they learn. This was something, it wasn't like, okay, we're riding a bike and now we're going to ride a motorcycle. The bike and the motorcycle have very common features. This was, I don't know anything about this. The closest we could get was a typewriter. That was about the closest we could get. And a lot of them felt it was kind of a useless typewriter because at that time we had IBM Selectrics on every desk. Put the paper in, roll it up type and you put the little white backspace and that's how you did it. The other problem was we didn't have anyone to send this stuff to. Nobody out there. We could remember the first fax machines and you wondered who am I going to fax to and you faxed to somebody who had one and then you ran down to see how it came out the other end. (laughs) (laughs) It was the same thing with this technology. There was nowhere to take it, nowhere to send it. Professors at Stanford would get it, uh, government officials and some, but you couldn't send it to another real estate office. We had lots of problems. We had problems with email addresses. 
The realtors came back and said, our client, we're not selling real estate because we're ending up in a technology conversation with our clients. And at that time, the majority of them were, in fact, engineers in the Valley. And they couldn't explain the reason for the email address. People thought it was a typo. People thought it was a gimmick. People didn't understand what you did with it. And they said, we're spending 30 minutes of our listing or selling time trying to explain this thing on our card. We want it off. We dealt with all kinds of, we do not want this on our cards. It's getting in the way of our business. So then as a CEO, you say, okay, we'll take it off. But the CEO said, no, we're not taking it off. We're going to learn to explain it. And soon our clients will understand what it is we're explaining to them. We lost some people, not many, but some. We set up classes. There were eight classes a day. Everybody had to take at least 20 classes. We became a mini university teaching people how to email, how to download, how to anything to do with technology at that point. A lot of them had paper and they weren't sure how they were going to get, how you got the paper in this thing. And they'd go back over to their typewriters and type. So I gave an ultimatum and I said, at every class they went through, we gave a t-shirt or we gave a pen or we gave a graduation type. We had to encourage them to get through these courses. And there were early adapters, which I learned about. There are those people who step up right away and want to learn everything there is about it. And they led the way for everyone else. The tail end, I gave an ultimatum. By this date, at this time, we will be removing your typewriters. So you better learn how to use this because there will be no typewriters. Typewriters went under the desks. They went into the ladies' room. They went into the cars. I mean, these guys were going to hold on to those typewriters no matter what. (laughs) And I had to find them in the ladies' room, in the ladies' stall, in the supply room, under the desk. And I had people go and find them all, and and we gave them away. So I learned a lot about technology. I learned, learned, which applies to all, anything new, is the learning curve of biology. How do you teach people a new practice that they've never seen before? And how long does it take them to absorb that, to couple with that new learning? And how many of them have the emotional strength, which we talked about, to learn? As a real estate agent who just wanted to sell houses, I was involved in things like classes, teachers that had to teach the classes, which was language they'd never spoken. I know a little bit about technology. So there was so much there that I want to ask (laughs) questions on. I mean, talking about adapting to change. It's perfect timing right now with COVID and the way that we're redoing our entire work situation. But before even going into that, you talked a little bit about the psychology of some of these people you worked with for early adapters and their their mindset. And I'm really kind of curious because you also mentioned explaining to engineers (laughs) an email on a card. How do these engineers, what's their thought process like outside of their comfort zone outside the engineer lab when they're wanting to buy a house or making that decision? Do you see a lot of overlap? The CEO of the big tech firm, the decision maker and the confident decision maker with real estate or are people's thought process different depending on the situation? What's been your experience in the Valley? Because it brings into play culture, different cultures 
have different thought processes and have different practices. It brings into play your status or your role in a company. Are you a CEO, CFO? Are you making big decisions? They're, they're all very different. But I think under, I mean, some culturally will speak with their parents, depending on their age, if this is a first home. If they've bought two or three or four homes, maybe not parents, maybe colleagues, certainly spouses or significant others. or So it just it's very diverse. If you could identify a specific type of person, I could probably tell you how they go through that thought process. How about that confident CEO? I don't get to observe them at work, so it's very difficult for me to make an assessment and say, well, oh, well, I saw them do this at work, but they don't do it this way at home. But I have to assume if they're a CEO of a successful firm, they are making decisions consistently. They have to make them successfully or they're not CEO very long. I don't know how they do that on the work side, but I can tell you what I observe in the personal side. And there are certain things that I experience and that I look for. I look to see how they make assessments versus assertions. A lot of people speak in posture that they're making an assertion when in reality, they're making an assessment. I look and watch and listen as to how they do that. It's likely if they confuse those two in their personal life, they're probably confusing them in their business life. And it's not that they're not already a superstar in what they're doing, but what else might they be doing if they sorted those two out? Collaboration, I watch to see how they collaborate, who they collaborate with, how they choose collaborators. Are they stronger, more powerful people than they are? Or are they or are they not? And based on how they make those choices, you can kind of tell how they probably act or respond in their businesses. Horizons of time are critical. Do they think in immediate horizons or do they think in long-term horizons? That too is cultural. A lot of cultures really do think in 30-year horizons. The Western culture, not so much. Is that good? Is that bad? I don't know. I look at horizons of time. How do they think? I look at emotional strength. How long can they sustain uncertainty before they fold? Folding, let's say in real estate would be they withdraw an offer or they rethink what they've decided or, and and it's not to say there aren't appropriate times to do that for sure, but it's that emotional strength. Can you hold the line? Can you hold the course? Can you bear uh, the uncertainty to get to a successful result? A lot of them can't. There are things like that that I observe uh, with very powerful people when they turn to their personal life and how they make their decisions. Just diving a little bit more into what you just talked about is when you meet people or successful people and help them by home, do they carry the same clear business savvy attitude in their personal life as well? That's three questions in one. One of them, once again, is I, I don't know how they perform it at their business. And I have to just assume that because they are a CEO and they've been there a while, they're powerful, they're making the right decisions. If they're a public firm, that their board is satisfied, that their investors are satisfied, and and that's that. Then I look at how they interact with me. And I find that the CEOs, I just, I'll tell you what, I just had a conversation a few days ago. I am working with a CEO of Fortune 250 firm. And she said to me, 
after a conversation that was pretty tough, we were in the middle of our conversation. She took the lead, always takes the lead. They always take the lead a majority of times in a conversation because I think they believe that it's a critical decision. It's a family decision. It's a monetary decision. And they are powerful, strong, educated, and capable of making those decisions. And so they take the lead on the conversations. I intercepted the conversation and said, that's it. We're done. We're not going to continue this conversation. We're not getting anywhere. This person is not going to jump through these hoops for you. So you run this flag up as far as you need to go so we can talk to someone who can actually make a decision for it. Because we're no longer jumping through these hoops. After that conversation, she said to me, I have never had anybody interrupt my conversation and actually take control of a meeting and that I was satisfied with the way in which they did it. So she said, thank you for doing that. So that's kind of telling about their willingness to give up their authority, their willingness to give up their understanding that they can make the best decisions for themselves. And it's not likely that other people are necessarily going to be able to do it the way they would do it. So they just take control and do it. Oftentimes, unfortunately, it's to their demise because getting a solution doesn't mean necessarily in the moment in that conversation. Sometimes that solution starts days before the conversation takes place, but there's a plan in place to secure it days after. The other thing is I watch how they engage with their family because that was your question. They are marvelous with their children. They are marvelous with their spouses. I watch these powerful, rough, you know, cut to the chase. One of our clients, please forgive me, cut the bullshit is what I, <laughs> and yet they turn to their kids and they say, do you understand what's going on? Is it, I want you to learn how to buy a house. I want you to understand what the concerns are. I want, that's amazing that they go from top CEO to, I can handle this, get out of my way to, oh, I guess you can handle it too. I'll get out of the way. Two, I want my children to understand what this process is all about. In my mind, whenever I think of top tech CEOs, I think of these people that are technologically savvy off the chart. Where right now, when you were talking about how they interact with their family, interact at work, interact with all these people, it sounds like their emotional intelligence with the general population, how they can read situations, how they can read body language, how they can read other people that intelligence is also probably off the chart as well. Is that a fair assessment? Well, for you to be CEO, you've got to, you have to deal with people and you have to get people to motivate and move the direction that you want them to go. So yeah, you have to have some pretty, a lot of emotional strength because people don't want to go. As I experienced when we introduced technology into real estate, no, they want their typewriters. That's what they want. That's what they're used to. That's what they understand. I think it's a fear of change. That question's hard for me to answer. Can I ask a question about what your opinion of is of the housing market post COVID going to be? Well, we were talking this morning about my father was a master chemist. So I was raised with a chemist. So everything was a scientific, everything had to have a scientific solution. And what I was taught was that you take fixed variables. You find out what the cornerstones are. You take those variables and you add a fixed component and then you add a variable to it. And because the only thing that's changed in that, I guess, scientifically in that test is the variable. 
In real estate, we used to do that easily. We would say, okay, what are the interest rates? What is the employment in the Valley? And we go through a number of these types of things and we'd say, okay, based on that, if we change what's the supply and demand, I mean, there were a lot of things that we would look at. So let's say we put supply on the table and let's say we put interest rates on the table and let's say we put employment on the table and then we adjust the interest rate. It goes from 2.975 to 4.1. What do we think is going to happen? I have to smile. Because people are really upset if it goes to 4.1. And I lived in an 18% world. So I lived in a world where interest rates were 18%. And all we wanted, all we wanted was a single digit interest rate. And now they say, well, I'm not paying 3.5. What are they, crazy? And I'm thinking people would have given anything to have anything under a double digit interest rate. The problem with the COVID situation is all the parts are moving. There's nothing that you can define as a fixed So let's look at it. We've got an election coming up. We had this unfortunate, and I really, this is not the moment maybe to do that, but we had that unfortunate incident um, where the general, yeah, that was not good at all. And then we have interest rates that are artificially being held down. You cannot get a non-conforming jumbo loan for 2.875 ever, anywhere. That's crazy to get that type of an interest rate. So we can't base it on that because when they remove that and let it go, how's that going to impact us? Now we have the work from home situation. Well, okay, there's an example. There has been talk about working from home, remote working, things like that for a very long time. Long time. And it's not worked because people just couldn't quite get around it. We had COVID and boom, they didn't have a choice. They were out. They were home. That was it. No choice. Now they're saying maybe they need to stay home. Twitter said, no, we're going to allow our people to work from home. When everything comes back to normal, whatever that might be, are there really going to be, they're talking about now, oh, you can leave California. You can go to Tahoe. You can work from all these different places. I don't know yet if that's true. It's very intriguing. And I have my list of where I might go to. I'm not sure how that's really going to work out because we've always had close collaboration. I love being in a Zoom meeting or, you know, some sort of, but it's not the same as like I am with you right now, Sean, or you right now, Sunil. I can see you twitching. I can see you moving. I can see much better our conversation than on a screen. I don't know what's going to happen. They open up the cities, they close the cities. They open up the gyms, they close the gyms. I don't know what these small companies are going to do. I heard the majority of small companies, over 50%, are owned by people over 60. The baby boomers. Baby boomers are saying, and we had it right in Los Gatos. Baby boomers are saying, I'm not coming back. Because they're at that age where they were almost getting ready to retire anyway. And this forced them, not all, but many are saying, I'm not coming back. I'm closing for good. What does that mean? So what do they do? Do they leave the area? Does the supply go up? Do they move in with their kids? Do they, I don't know what they're going to do. So there's so many variables in this scenario that are artificial and unyet tested. This is going to go on a year, 18 months, two years. I don't know. I don't think we have consistent testing yet. Certainly vaccines appear to be far off into the future. And I speak because I walk a lab every once in a while. 
that's doing COVID work, it's very difficult. So what I do is I step back and I go, okay, every time we have one of these phenomena, whether it's an earthquake, whether it's a Black Friday, whether it's a dot-com bust, and forgive me, whether it's a 9-11 experience, whether it's the 2007, 8, 9, 10, 18% interest, I've been through them all. Each one, I think, oh, this is more unique. This is different. This is going to change things. And it never does. So I look at this and I go, oh, this is unique. There's so many moving parts. This is going to make it, this is going to make it, I don't know. It's too early to tell. But if I were to bet and I looked at $31,000 in Cupertino in 1968, and that house now is probably 2.8, 3.1 million, it survived all of those ups and downs. I'm going to have to bet. No, it's not going to change anything. We're going to, it's going to continue. So Helen, you talked a very important thing. You said something related to labs and you said you walk it every day. But the most of the listeners, they may not even know what does a BSL lab looks like or what does a BSL lab means. So BSL is a biosafety level. Center for Disease Control has established levels for labs. And BSL is just a biosafety level. You have BSL-1, BSL-2, four, 3, and 4. The lower levels, BSL-1, is similar to a lab that you often see, you know, uh, in a picture. You might have to wash your hands. It's possible that you might have to have glasses on. Maybe you might have to have a mask on. But it's a pretty low level as far as any sort of danger or need to control. Then as you move up the ladder to BSL-2, 3, 4, it gets pretty extreme. So the one which you're talking, is it BSL lab one kind of level, is it? We have BSL one and BSL two. So you can go into a lab. There's benches in the lab. People are sitting on the benches and they're doing their work. BSL two is an enclosed area. It's a tissue lab. Now you're dealing with human tissue or live tissue. Now it's enclosed. Now you're wearing jackets. Now you're wearing masks. Now you're wearing hoods. Now you're wearing, there's just a whole lot of different requirements because there's more risk in the work that you're doing and what could happen. So as you go up to BSL three and BSL four, BSL four, there are only 13 BSL four labs in the United States incredibly difficult to get anybody to agree to build a BSL-4 lab. BSL-3 is what everybody's implying caused all of our, our current problems. Wait, Helen, you have to tell us a little bit about the transition from <laughs> real estate to the BSL lab, because it seems like there's a little part of that story <laughs> that there yet. So there's a lab in Santa Cruz. It's called Startup Sandbox. It's actually an incubator and it has a lab. Most inc incubators do have labs. And it's uh, right at the base of the university. And I don't know, I'll do a little sidebar here. I don't know if everyone realizes that University of California, Santa Cruz has some of the most, probably has the most intellectual property of almost any university. I mean, they have just a library full of intellectual property. Someone said once that the other universities move out and ask for forgiveness. Santa Cruz wants to make sure it's perfectly okay before they move out. That's been their history, I'm told. 
I almost went to the University of California, Santa Cruz, but back when I was young, they had a pass fail. You either passed or you failed. And my parents said, absolutely no way are you getting a pass fail. You must get a lettered grade. (laughs) But I wanted to go there. That's what my first choice was. But they said no. So most universities like Berkeley and San Diego, they have incubators close by. And what happens with the postgrads or postdocs and professors is they come out of the university down into the incubators and they start their research in bringing these ideas to the market. So they're commercializing these ideas. It doesn't get any better if you're doing research and that's what you do to be doing it near the water in the beautiful setting of Santa Cruz. So if you have to be in a lab and if you have to be focused and if, you know, it gets pretty intense, it's so beautiful to walk out the door and the water's right there. You replenish, you refresh and back into the lab you go and your research continues. So the people are very fortunate to come out of that university and be able to continue their research right there at Startup Sandbox. The gentleman, the CEO there is very well known in the Valley. He's very accomplished, very well connected. And lives in Santa Cruz, came from Saratoga and moved over to Santa Cruz. A fantastic captain, has a boat, races and sails. The president of the company, he's the CEO and the chairman. The president of the company, unfortunately, passed away at a very young age a few months ago. And Lou Pompianco, who is the CEO and the chairman, called me up and said, could you step in and be interim president? And I thought, I don't know. I'm sure. I got excited about it because it reminded me of the technology days. It was a new learning curve. It was a new language. There were new networks, different people, people I didn't know, words I'd never heard, standards of practice. All of it was going to be new again. But the core fundamentals of business, I've got those down. So understanding what it takes to run a business, whether it's real estate, bioscience, an incubator type. I understand those fundamentals. So that's what I went there to do. And in that process, walk the lab. What is this? How does that work? Why do we have these CO2 things beeping? (laughs) And people, oh, we're out of CO2. So I learned all that. Why? What's the difference between a minus 80 freezer and a minus 120? What do you put in a minus 120 that you don't put in a minus 80? And what do you put in there? What are some of the most exciting research right now happening in your lab? Anything which you can share? Five of the companies. So Bill and Linda Gates have their foundation, as you know. They've put aside some funds, quite a bit actually, to resolve this COVID issue. There are real strict regulations or real strict rules. You have to qualify and satisfy all of these rules because you can imagine all over the world, people are going to apply for this. I think they tried, and I'm speaking maybe out of turn, but they may have tried to limit the amount of people who are going to apply by saying you must meet the following conditions. Five of the companies at the Sandbox were able to apply and did in fact apply because they are in the process of COVID research. And surprisingly, the other day, which is very unusual, the person who heads that up actually personally reached out to our CEO and said, we're in the process. And a few of these, three of them in particular, they wanted more information on. 
We talked about your life journey, earlys. Then you talked about technology. Then you talked about how do you take a company in a new norms, Steve Jobs. Anything you want to leave our listeners? Any thoughts? My entire life, I've lived on a commission basis. I have never been employed. I think that being on a commission basis allows the marketplace to tell you immediately whether you have value. You can be employed and in a cubicle somewhere for weeks, if not years, before somebody figures out that maybe it's not the right place or you're not the right person or the performance isn't at the right level. The marketplace will tell you by this weekend. You're in or you're out. It's required me to be incredibly discerning, very well-grounded in the decisions that I make. I have a few things here that I wrote down and I thought if I was going to start a business or give a recommendation as to how to start a business, first of all, I'm in full support of entrepreneurs. That is such an exciting place to be. It's brutal. It's painful. There are many nights that you go home wondering if this is the right solution or right role for you. But the outcome, win or lose, is phenomenal. If you win, great. If you lose, look what you learned. And you take what you learned and you do it again. (laughs) So I said what I did when I looked and I thought, well, what do I do when I start these companies? The first thing I do is I always look outside for disruption. When I go back in time and look at the disruption to industries, it's never within the industry. It's always from outside the industry. Uber didn't come from, the taxi companies should have done that. Uber did it. And you can make a whole long list of all the people who came from outside and disrupted. I go out and I say, okay, I'm going to look outside the industry to find out who could disrupt me or who I might be able to disrupt. I think embracing downturns is critical. Rather than pull back during a down, and now you want to talk about emotional strength, rather than pull back when there's a downturn, you should move forward. There's a saying, lean into, which we all know where that came from. And it's kind of that same feeling of don't pull back, don't hunker down. Yes, the revenue is dropping. Yes, it's hard to keep your payroll going. This is the time that you spend money, that you market, and that you grow. Because when everybody's doing well, to be a differential is incredibly difficult. When everybody else is pulling back and you have all this space to play in, it's phenomenal. But you have to be bold and you have to have the strength. To do that because your instinct, pull back, buckle down, wait until it's over and then come out. That would be one. I'd confirm the standards of practice in your industry and I'd at a minimum learn to beat them. But really what I do is reconfigure them. When you start, when you have a startup, you've got categories. You have to have accounting, you have to have marketing, you have to have branding, you have to have sales. There's certain categories you have to have. And if you look at each one of those, and this is what Alain Pinel did very well, is they said, if our clients are engineers, if our clients are artists, if they're designers, if they're architects, if they're doctors, whatever it is that they are, we are going to be the best in their field with what we do. So our offices were architecturally designed. They were all consistent. When you walk into an Alain Pinel office, they all look the same. You know, immediately you're there. We had architects and designers come from all over to look at these offices. So we competed in their fields. Technology, we competed in their field. You look at the different components, marketing, 
We are black signs with very small letters that you couldn't see. Black was evil and you couldn't read the lettering because it was white on black. Very bad marketing. People ran classes and used this as an example of how not to market. My advice would be to go outside to identify what it is. Don't just be what it is that you're creating or designing or the service you're providing. Make sure every aspect of your firm addresses the client that you're going to be involved with. That is something. Find the pain. We know about that. Find the weakness. Build an incredibly strong culture. That's not so easy to do. That's the CEO. You have to be adamant about the rules or the practices or the performance. Adamant so that it couples and becomes part of their drive. You need passionate people, intelligent people, and then you need to cut them loose. So I want to end with this, if I may. I had the opportunity to talk to Steve Jobs. And one of the things I did at Alain Pinnell, and I'm unfortunately started doing it again with the current company, Pertria, that I have. I held everything. I knew everything about the business. And I held it up here. And Steve Jobs said to me one time, I don't know, maybe we're writing software going to Oakland. I don't know what we were doing. And he said, Helen, I'm going to tell you something. He said, the most important thing a CEO can do is when they leave their company, most CEOs want to see it fail so they can personally say, see how important I was? He said, don't do that. Build your company so that when you walk away, it's stronger and better and more powerful than when you were there. And he gave me this rule of thumb. He said, it should last and your culture should continue however many years you served as CEO. So if you served as CEO for 10 years, that company should carry that culture for additional 10 years. Well, he blew that out of the water because he left and the culture continued for a very, very long time. He left once to go to next. And then, of course, he passed away. So I've always remembered as a CEO, don't carry it in your head. Don't not share everything you know. Build a team that when you step aside and you walk away, that team can carry on that culture and those standards, that passion and belief. If I had to give one piece of advice to a CEO or to a startup, that would be it. Oh, and this is an amazing interview. And I know everyone's going to listen to this multiple times. If anyone wants to find out more information about you, what you're working on, What's the best way to go about doing that? There's LinkedIn and websites. There's the Startup Sandbox website. There's the World Tomato Society website, Pertria's website. Any of those are certainly LinkedIn. We'll get you connected to all three of those or me. Absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the SiliconValleyPodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. 